0: When it comes to incidents of account takeover and the fraud that ultimately results, the lines that divide a banking institution's responsibility from a commercial customer's liability are often hard to define. In fact, as many recent legal disputes over fraud losses linked to account takeover prove, the onus for security falls on both sides. But there are certain minimal standards banks and credit unions are expected to follow. And here, I'm joined by a panel of three account takeover and financial cybersecurity experts who will share their thoughts about two recent cases involving account takeovers and how they feel the institutions involved failed and succeeded in some cases in their security efforts. On this panel, we have Doug Johnson, Vice President of Enterprise Risk, Cybersecurity, Business Continuity, Resiliency Policy, and Fraud Deterrence for the American Bankers Association. Joseph Burton, a cybersecurity attorney and managing partner of the San Francisco office of law firm Dwayne Morris, and Amy McHugh, An attorney and former FDIC examiner who now works as a banking institution advisor for Clifton Larson Allen. Doug, Joe and Amy, today we will explore the similarities and differences as they relate to security highlighted in the TRC Oil and Choice Escrow account takeover incidents. In one case, the bank settled and agreed to pay the commercial customer for its losses. In the other case, the bank ultimately was triumphant in the courts, proving that its security was quote unquote reasonable, and that the commercial customer failed to adequately protect its own accounts. Amy, I'd like to start with you, and then we can move to some of the other panelists. You and I in the past have spoken about the Choice Escrow case, which ultimately ended up favoring the banking institution in this particular incident, because Choice Escrow didn't actually take advantage of some of the security procedures and methods that the bank was offering. What is your take on how that case ended
1: uh, Well, my initial reaction, I think, to the to the ultimate finding was I, I agreed with that, that after thinking about it, that the, I believe the client should be held liable for the losses. However, maybe not necessarily in the way the court reached that decision. The court tended to rely on, first of all, the 2005 FFIEC guidance, which at the time of the case was the latest guidance available. And also it stated based upon that guidance and on UCC 4A that the bank had implemented commercially reasonable security and the fact that the client did not choose to use dual control was a deciding factor. I think my issue with this case was the court finding that for a $13 billion bank, Bank Corp South, that it was commercially reasonable for them just to offer user ID password, pass mark the little picture and dual control as these are our offerings, these are our security offerings, and this is all we're going to offer. I don't think that that was reasonable for such a bank. I think such a bank should have been able to offer additional anomaly monitoring, authentication services to the client ultimately. That was my main issue with this case, kind of comparing it, I think it was to Patco with the one-size-fits-all. Even if there was some question about whether the escrow company, whether they really were restricted to only two people being in the office and one would be gone, they couldn't use dual control. They may have been able to implement dual control in that case in some fashion, I don't think, and it wasn't necessary to get wires out immediately each day as they came through. But I do think that the fact that Bancorp South was not either able or willing to offer the company a different type of authentication process based upon their current situation, I think that that could be seen as unreasonable.
0: Amy, you make a good point here about customized um, security offerings. This is something, Doug, that you and I have talked about in the past as well, and I find some of Amy's responses here interesting would you argue that the size of the institution should play a role on how security is deemed reasonable?
2: Well, Tracy, I, I think that to some degree that's, that's correct. I think that what we always see is is that different institutions have different risk profiles, and because of the different risk profiles of both the institution and their customers, uh, different types of uh, protection measures are, are reasonable for that particular institution. I do think that if you're a, a community-based institution that – Sometimes you have the capability of of using human factors, individuals, real live bodies, you know, to evaluate transactions, do callbacks and things of that nature, or a little bit more, in fact, in some cases, much more easily able to be done because the institution is just smaller and the institution has a a greater capability to physically know their customer. And so the protection measures are just different. But I also think that the level of sophistication of both the protection measures uh, and the, the nature of the crime have changed over time as well. And I think um, that's what uh, Amy was alluding to and what you were alluding to when you're talking about this particular case, um, essentially going back to the 2005 as opposed to the 2011 guidance. The 2011 guidance is much more oriented toward individualized risk in institutions, much more oriented toward a recognition that certain types of security measures are appropriate and certain ones are not, much more oriented toward ensuring that the customer is aware of what their protections and responsibilities are are. And I think that's just what we've learned between 2005 and and 2011. So I think just from the the standpoint of the institution as as well as the standpoint of, of the agencies, we've continually looked more at what is presented in terms of the risk to the institution and the risk to the customer. Based upon that risk, then the institution and the customer should have their individual responsibility for putting in certain types of protection measures.
0: We're touching on here what are some of the contractual arrangements that banking institutions make with their commercial customers. Joe, I'm going to hand this over to you. Uh, early on when we saw this particular case, Choice Escrow versus Bancor South, actually go to the appellate court, you told me once that this was one of the most interesting cases involving account takeover that you had reviewed. Give us some perspective about your feeling about how this case turned out, and and do you think that uh, this really kind of set a new precedent for the industry?
3: I would say I I probably disagree a little bit with Amy, though. I think when we talk this out a little bit, it's probably not that much of a disagreement, but let me go back or respond to what I think about the case. I, I think it's one of the most interesting cases because it has this element of a customer turning down security. And it forced the court to consider that aspect the first and only time that I know in any of the cases that it was considered. And the way it was resolved, that is, the fact that the customer's turndown was viewed as an assumption of the risk and I don't disagree with the Court of Appeals determination in that regard, is interesting because it will, I think, naturally create an issue that at least banks and their customers have to think about, which is what if I don't want or don't like the uh, security that's being offered to me? But that adds an additional element to these where customers choose to do that. The other thing is It's a case which really sort of marches through the question of commercial reasonableness. And again, I think I told you really the first case that really came out and strongly got behind the FFIEC guidelines and using them as the base standard of determining what's commercially reasonable. So it, in a lot of ways, is a very important case. I know people talk about PACO and PACO is an important case because I think uh, one of the first of its kind. But the choice escrow case really has a lot of things that uh, at least lawyers for banks and customers are going to chew on for a while, including leaving open the issue of what happens where the fault, if you will, is with the customer. And can that change the equation in a way that's favorable to the bank? Not somewhere they had to go in that case, but still open. I disagree just a little bit, or or at least maybe I don't disagree. I had some nuance to what Amy said in that what the FFIEC does, I think, is establish a floor. And it's possible to perhaps have better security than existed here that the bank offered. But I think if we want that, I think the industry as a whole has to speak out and establish that and have the regulations reflect that. And we're not there yet. And I think the standard or floor that we have, which is something above multi-factor, is good because at least we have that as a minimum standard. And at least in a lot of instances, it is going to serve, I think, a good purpose and I think I would rather be there than be in a situation in which it's left open. We get a worse situation. I'm less concerned that we're not offering sort of the Cadillac of services, or if not the Cadillac, I don't know what between a Cadillac and a UGO, but that's the level that we could offer. But the industry has to step up and say that's the case before, I think, the law is going to get behind that notion.
0: This makes for a nice segue to discuss a little bit of what we know about this TRC oil case. TRC, of course, is a company that's based in California and was involved in this account takeover dispute with its bank, United Security Bank. The case was settled, but ultimately, you know, there are some questions about exactly how much security United Security Bank was offering. And it seems, just based on what we know about the case, that it looks like they were relying solely on username and password and felt that if the customer was in some way compromised because of a phishing attack then the onus should fall on that customer and uh, ultimately the fraud loss would be the customer's responsibility amy i'm going to hand this back to you i know you and i have talked a little bit about the trc case What is your feeling there when it comes to the level of security or the offerings that this particular bank was offering to customers, and why was it not sufficient?
1: And I did Google some. I found some articles that kind of gave me a little bit more detail on what um, the bank was offering, but it does look like the bank was just offering username and password, which obviously is not satisfactory. They did install, which caught, I think, some of the subsequent attempted fraudulent wire transfers, they did establish a limit, wire transfer limits, in the system so that those transactions were not allowed. So they did have some kind of active automatic monitoring on the bank side. In my opinion, I think the bank was wise to settle if all they were using was username and password, particularly considering the case law that we have established so far. Even with Choice Escrow, I mean, Choice Escrow, again, going back to the earlier point they did offer dual control, the customer did turn that down. And that can be seen as a factor of well, we did offer something to the customer, and that they were not happy with it, so they decided, based upon their circumstances, to just withdraw from using dual control. So I think this case—I wish I had more details on it—definitely shows that maybe the growing um, awareness of banks that they're going to need have something in place in their systems. That do more than just username and password. One single factor authentication.
0: Doug, I'd like to get your perspective here. You know, you're getting some of the the legal take from Joe and Amy, and Amy also has some some experience in working with some of the banking institutions directly, especially when it comes to FFIEC guidance. But how surprising is it that we would have a banking institution out there in today's environment that would think that username and password is sufficient?
2: I always hesitate to comment on (laughs) particular cases, but I I do think that there's authentication guidance, which exists currently, which clearly puts the uh, requirement of the bank at a much higher level than just username and password. That's clear by guidance. I think that what we see is really a need for financial institutions to continually evaluate what their risks are and continually challenge and change their authentication measures. Joe took issue with Amy, so I'm going to take issue with Joe. I think that essentially we, we really can't have a floor in this kind of, of environment. And I, I don't know that Joe was necessarily suggesting that we have a standard set of authentication measures, but it's it's really hard to do that in this environment where the threats are always changing. And so I think that while back in 2005 and beforehand when the FDIC particularly was evaluating whether user name and password were sufficient and determined them to be insufficient, we've come a, a substantial way you know, from there in terms of all the variety of authentication measures which we've talked about on this call that are available. And, and I think the thing that's important, and it gets to the customer's ability to essentially refuse to, to use, say, dual authentication, in this particular instance, the customer needs to understand, and it's the bank's obligation to ensure that the customer understands, that when they do that, when they refuse to use a particular type of authentication measure, that that they could potentially be automatically out of the commercially reasonable box. Mm -hmm. And they could be automatically subject to greater levels of liability. And that gets to the part of the authentication guidance from 2011. I love the way that the FFIEC agencies phrase this. When you have a authentication guidance which says that essentially in a business environment that the bank is obligated to indicate to the customer what protections they have under Regulation E, but that's an interesting way to phrase the question because they have no protections under Regulation E. It's, right. it's all under UCC where they don't have the, the same levels of protection. The customer needs to understand that. The bank needs to be able to have a way to communicate with the customer to understand that the customer has responsibilities, that there is risk, but that the bank and the customer in unison can come to an agreement in terms of what security measures can reasonably protect the environment so that they're both comfortable with that environment. But lastly, I think the other interesting piece of of all this is that it, it still remains a concrete fact The commercially reasonable is a local determination, and I'd love the lawyers to chime in on this, so maybe I'm asking the question. Can you ever reasonably expect to have a a national rationalization of this particular environment when under UCC 4A, commercially reasonable is a judicial local determination? In some instances, the judge may decide that the FFIC guidance is what they want to look at. In some cases, then they decide to look at duty of care um, and then go completely outside that box. And so can we really ever have a rationalized environment with that kind of a legal framework?
0: Joe, I'm going to hand this over to you. And one thing I think that's interesting that Doug's noted here, and perhaps you could expand on this a bit, is that oftentimes when we see these cases, you do have banks that are based in one state and commercial customers that are based in another. And so if we are leaning more on the Uniform Commercial Code, which again is something that's adopted by the states, how do courts reconcile that?
3: I think that the UCC is adopted by each state, but it's not changed. And I think if you look at historically how UCC provisions are interpreted and governed, you do have a standard that is much more national. It's not like there's a regional variation. I mean, you can all, you're always going to have, anytime you have judges look at a circumstance, you're going to have differences in opinion as to the meaning of a phrase, commercially reasonable. But that tends to be, I think, thinned out over time because courts look to the body of work, and that body begins to, I think, coalesce around a consensus, if you will, Uh, view or definition of of the term commercially reasonable. It's like negligence. Can you ever have a national standard for negligence? Well, no, but within certain bounds, I think you're going to find agreement about what the meaning of negligence is, or in this case, what the meaning of commercially reasonable is. That's certainly not the case today. The issue today is trying to determine what commercially reasonable is meant. And the cases have been few and diverse enough that you really don't have a large body of cases to fill in. But I think over time we're gonna see that. I would not worry about that. And I also think that the more the courts will tend to look for industry standards and practices that they can adopt, there's gonna be a natural tendency to look toward the FFIEC or if there are some competing standards, at least as the first stop for determining commercially reasonable. It's a floor. If you don't meet the FFIEC standards, you're not commercially reasonable. If you do meet them and you do some other things and we're going to look at perhaps a higher duty that we want to impose, that is the law developed a notion of a higher duty, then you're going to have further interpretation and combining and consensus. It doesn't mean that If you turn down a uh, security measure that's offered, that you are automatically going to be in the suit. The security measure that's actually used, that is, if they offer you turn it down, the security measure that's imposed is still going to have to be commercially reasonable. It's not going to be a situation where I'm a bank, I offer you something that I know you're going to refuse, You refuse it, and then I put in my cheapo security measure that's not commercially reasonable, and I fly home. That's not the way the UCC reads. And even beyond that, the experimental case has taught us where commercially reasonable fails, the court reaches to good faith to fill the hole, to protect customers uh, in those circumstances. It's important to understand that it's not automatic. Can can I clarify?
2: Um, What I was maybe attempting um, to say, maybe not very articulately, is that to the extent that the customer would refuse a particular um, security provision, the bank in some cases might even indicate to the customer, okay, now you need to sign an additional document indicating that you're refusing the standard to the extent that they are breached in a a manner such as as what we saw with Choice Escrow. The bank has the capability of, of saying, look, we offered this particular type of security measure. They didn't accept it. I'm not suggesting that the bank wouldn't put in other measures to try to enhance security. I'm suggesting that the customer might be taking on additional liability to the extent that they refuse security.
3: I disagree. I don't think they take on additional liability. I think that what they're left with still must be commercially reasonable. The security measure that's in fact used still must be commercially reasonable. Refusal is sort of a presumption. It deems that the security measure used is commercially reasonable if if there's a turn down. But it's rebuttable, and I think in a bad case, that is a case in which it was in fact not commercially reasonable, the customer would not be out because they turned down. It's a circumstance like Choice Escrow where they turned down a measure. The measure that was in fact used by the bank was commercially reasonable that they lose.
1: I just wanted to jump in here about mm-hmm. the definition of commercial reasonableness. Well, we say that the procedure that the customer turned down had to have been commercially reasonable, and that was the case here in Choice. So you're referring to the dual control, is that correct? Yeah. Okay, so kind of expanding on that definition of commercial reasonableness then, what if multiple authentication factors can combined, the user ID, password, device cookie, and then something else would be considered as a group to be commercially reasonable. But then one of the elements they decide to turn down, that in itself then standing on its own wouldn't be commercially reasonable. So that's kind of what I'm looking at is grouping the factors together to say this is commercially reasonable, where if you took one away, it would not, would not be, be commercially reasonable.
0: You know, from a legal perspective, that would differ from maybe a recommendation that um, an examiner or the ABA would give to a banking institution.
3: I think that that is the choice, escrow, and circumstance. I think the court considered all of the facts when I say that, each of the methods of combined security. It deemed that the measures minus the one that was turned down was Uh, commercially reasonable. The package that remains after one component is turned down is not commercially reasonable. I think the bank loses, but in choice escrow what remained after that element was turned down was commercially reasonable, was still, if you will, commercially reasonable And the bank was able to win on that in that regard.
1: And that's kind of where I get confused is that I think user ID and password and device cookie arguably is not commercially reasonable on its own. Mm -hmm. My disagreement with how the court got to its final decision, I don't necessarily disagree with the decision, but how the court got to that decision and what implications that will have for future cases.
3: A lot of these cases were decided either on summary judgment or um, summary trial and the point that Amy Raises says that it places a premium on the lawyers involved. I mean, because I think it's a valid argument to make. The package that remains, we say, um, user ID and cookies, that's not enough. We say that's not commercially reasonable. We say that it meets the floor of the FFIEC guidelines, but we argue it's not commercially reasonable, and here are my experts to say why in this environment or more specifically the environment of this particular customer, why it's not commercially reasonable. I think that argument is still open to be made. I don't think it's excluded. So I agree with you, uh, Amy, and I, I just think it means lawyers have to do a better job of presenting that position and not sort of just accepting the lowest common denominator.
0: And I'm going to wrap us up here and bring back. I think some of the points that both of you have made will tie in well with this final comment I'd like to get from each of you. And I'll start with you, Doug. As we're moving into these new cyber exams that the regulators are conducting on these uh, 500 smaller banking institutions, which oftentimes is where we see these account takeover incidents striking, are these the types of questions that banking institutions should be bracing themselves to answer when they have examiners knocking on their door?
2: Tracy, what we've heard from the assessment process uh, so far is is that the variety of questions that the institution is being asked run a fairly broad gamut. They deal with governance of the process, what is being uh, told to the board, how is the board overseeing the information security and cybersecurity process, all the way down to firewalls and authentication. And so I I think that really what the FFIC is is attempting to do is to uh, try to inform their process. this is the opportunity for the FFIEC agencies to sit and really get some specific information using a, a specific assessment process to make a determination of what enhancements to the existing guidance may or may not be necessary going forward. I think the community-based institutions do have the tools to protect themselves. I think that they're just different tools than than what the, the larger financial institutions use. And I go back to the human factors that I was talking about previously. I think that this whole process that the FFIC is going through is not going to do anything but enhance the the ability of those institutions to protect themselves because it will give the agencies some understanding of where there's some consistent guidance that needs to be put out to ensure that there's clarity in what the types of of protections that are necessary and how those protections should necessarily be used on a risk-based basis.
0: And Amy, let's get some perspective from you. Is part of what we've talked about here today as far as the layers of security and some of these account takeover incidents, are these areas that banking institutions should be prepared to talk with regulators about? I think
1: so. From what I understand for the new cybersecurity assessments, or at least the pilot program, is that they are relatively high level. So they may not get down into the actual, down into the, for instance, e-banking products, online ACH wire transfer, etc. I think what these new assessments are showing is that there's going to be increased focus on how the bank is actually identifying and then communicating with its peers in the industry about emerging threats and how it is integrating that information into the current incident response plans and in the risk assessments as well, so that that will eventually feed into the, for instance, the e-banking products we've been talking about as far as DDoS incidents, other incidents of of cybersecurity threats that might be occurring that will impact those areas. And I think what's really important, too, going back to the FFIEC had a webinar back in May 7th that kind of discussed these new assessments And one thing I really got that I took away from that was that there's really going to be increased focus, like you said, on board and C-level involvement. And just speaking for myself, I've been to a number of banks, performed exams, and also audits, and that typically is an area that is weak. And it's not that the board and C-level managers, executives are unaware of it. It's just that maybe it doesn't take as high a precedence as other things in the banking operations would, which makes sense. But I think that's definitely going to be a focus of regulators going forward is how involved really and how much understanding does the board and
0: C-level executives have in overall cybersecurity for their bank. And Joe, then we'll wrap up with you. What would be your final words of advice to banking institutions, especially as they're looking at some of the security controls that they're putting in place, as well as the contracts that they're signing with commercial customers?
3: The critical things are know your customer and making sure that security measures you put in are shaped. I use the word shaped as opposed to customized for a particular customer, but are shaped toward customer needs. I mean, I think that's the critical aspect of commercially reasonable. Secondly, I guess it is that you at least have to uh, understand and be in line with the industry standard. If you don't meet the industry standards, you are placing yourself in a really precarious situation. So that means you have to be aware of them and to take them to heart.
0: I'd like to thank each of you again for your time this afternoon. Great discussion.
2: Thank you, Tracy. Thank you. Thank you, Tracy.
0: Again, we've just heard from Joseph Burton, Amy McHugh, and Doug Johnson for Information Security Media Group. I'm Tracy Kitten.